This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Zneimer. Would you know what to do if you saw someone experiencing cardiac arrest? It's more common than you think. And many of us are exercising after making a New Year's resolution. But are we doing it right? But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration says more than 560 deaths have been reported in connection to recalled Philips devices to treat obstructive sleep apnea. More than 5 million of the machines were recalled in countries including Canada in 2020 and 2021. And the company reached an agreement with the FDA that could cost $400 million. There have been a number of class action suits filed in Canada and other countries after it was discovered that users could inhale tiny particles of foam while they slept. China has rolled out a $4 trillion plan for seniors. The so-called Silver Economy Plan caters to a rapidly aging population by involving the state and the private sector and will offer services ranging from meal delivery to nursing homes and entertainment options. Smart devices and virtual reality are expected to fill labor shortages and improve the quality of elder care. Those 60 and older will make up 30% of the country's population in a decade. Here's the latest fallout from Roger Waters' increasingly virulent anti-Semitic and anti-Israel comments. The German-based music company BMG is parting ways with the 80-year-old Pink Floyd co-founder for the rhetoric which has also infuriated his bandmates. BMG was scheduled to release a newly recorded version of Pink Floyd's 1973 album Dark Side of the Moon last year, but it scrapped the release. The rocker defends his actions, including wearing a Nazi costume on stage in Berlin last year. A 99-year-old Canadian woman is making a big splash in competitive swimming. Betty Brussel of British Columbia has just set three records at a master's swim meet. Already a multiple world record holder in swimming, she expects to continue competing while she remains in good health. Betty wears a hearing aid and had a pacemaker since a heart attack 25 years ago, but she still drives herself to swim practice twice a week. Her inspiring story is being made into a documentary set to be released next year. Have thought that U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is a skilled gamer. In a wide-ranging interview this week, the 77-year-old detailed the first time and last time she smoked pot in college and to prepare bought a pack of cigarettes. That led to a three-pack-a-day habit that would take her years to kick. 
But the nation's top money manager admits to another secret habit: she's hit the highest levels playing Candy Crush on her phone. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. I was out for a bike ride. Um, I'm a person who likes to cycle and, and relatively fit. Uh, I came home from that bike ride and um, wasn't feeling 100%. I felt like I was um, just out of gas, um, but it kind of hit the wall. Uh, and I told my wife at the time, uh, you know, I just don't feel well. She peeked in at me. I'd sat down in the, in our living room in a chair and I was slumped over. The neighbor rushed in for 20 minutes. She did CPR on me. That, frankly, not only saved my life, it, it saved my brain. That's cardiac arrest survivor Scott Klein talking about his experience. A new report from the Heart and Stroke Foundation finds that this potentially fatal event occurring outside a hospital is far more prevalent than we thought. Cardiologist Dr. Christopher Labos tells us simple training could save lives. Cardiac arrest is essentially when your heart stops beating. It is not the same thing as a heart attack, which is what a lot of people tend to believe. A heart attack is when you have a blocked artery in your heart. Now, as a result of that heart attack, as a result of the blockage, you might not be able to get enough blood to your heart. Your heart might then develop an arrhythmia or stop beating. And so a heart attack can lead to cardiac arrest, but they are actually distinct things. A lot of these cardiac arrests occur in hospital, but a lot occur out of the hospital. Right, and that's just simply a virtue of the fact of where we spend most of our lives. I mean, you spend most of your life at home, and so your cardiac arrest, if you're going to have one, is most likely to happen at home. The the reality is, though, if you are going to have a cardiac arrest, the best place to have it is in a hospital because all the medical equipment is right there. The second best place to have a cardiac arrest is in a public setting because when that happens, somebody's going to call 911 without a second's hesitation. The worst outcomes are when people have cardiac arrests at home because they start not feeling well, they start getting chest pain, they don't really know what's going on. They often delay calling for help, which is the main problem. There are a lot of people who try to wait out heart attack symptoms at home, and then that heart attack progresses, turns into a cardiac arrest, and that's when things get bad. So there are different types of cardiac arrests, and we've been talking, you know, I've been talking mainly about heart attacks because that's the, the the major factor that drives this, but of course it can happen for other reasons too. But there are different types of cardiac arrests and the setting in which it happens and how quickly somebody is able to start CPR, apply a defibrillator, call 911, are largely going to determine whether you have a good or a bad outcome. Okay, well, according to this new report, uh, it says that for a long time we assumed that there were about 35,000 cardiac arrests in Canada outside the hospital, but the number is, in fact, closer to 60,000. What's your reaction to that? I mean, I think that's about right, to be honest with you. Um, There are a lot of these events. Now, this is across the entire country. So, I mean, everybody's individual risk of having cardiac arrest is is obviously quite low, and your risk is higher if you have pre-existing heart disease of some kind. But taken as a whole, that is still a, a, a major burden of disease on society and the the tragic part about out-of-hospital cardiac arrest is that we know that there's a lot that we can do 
to minimize its impact on people, and that's make sure we have defibrillators in public places and train people in basic CPR. If we could do better at those two things, we would probably save a lot of lives. If you see somebody having a cardiac arrest, what would be done? Uh, Would you do CPR first and then a defibrillator or what? Actually, the first thing you should do before you do anything else is you should call 911. The second thing you should do if you have training in how to use these devices is get an AED if one is available. Because the point of CPR, or when I say CPR, I'll be more specific, the point of chest compression, so pumping on somebody's chest, is about trying to push some of the blood from the thoracic cavity from the chest into the rest of the body. So you're trying to minimize the damage that is being caused by the lack of blood flow. So just doing chest compressions is not going to bring somebody back, as it were. It's trying to limit the damage until help can arrive. The most important thing you could do after calling 911 is applying the defibrillator and then going back onto the standard CPR that most people were were trained on at some point in their lives. But if the heart has actually stopped beating, do you still do the defibrillator? So the great thing about the current defibrillators is that if it's not indicated, it won't deliver a shock. And I think that's the thing that we have to train people on. A lot of people are scared. And I think what a lot of people are afraid of is like, well, what if I use it wrong? You actually can't use a defibrillator wrong because the machine itself will detect if there's the specific type of arrhythmia that we're talking about, which is called ventricular ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation for the people who are taking notes. If it does not sense that arrhythmia, the machine will not deliver a shock. And so there's no real practical way that you could make a mistake. You're always better using it if a patient is unconscious and not responding because you can't know if they're having an arrhythmia, but the machine will because they'll be able to analyze the rhythm once you put the pads on. If you can shock somebody's heart early, the amount of time when that heart was not pumping blood to the rest of the tissues will be minimal and they will essentially be fine. So the speed with which you can deliver the shock can actually be life-saving. According to the report, more of us just have to learn uh, basic CPR and how to use a defibrillator. Right. And you know what? These are not hard to learn. So the most the most important thing you could do if you're part of a club or a group or a sports team or whatever at your local arena community center, push for people to get a defibrillator. Make sure it's prominently displayed so that everybody knows where it is and make sure everybody gets training. These are not complicated devices. Once you see how they work, the the sheer simplicity and almost banality of the device is a little bit surprising to people. So once you teach people how it works, they'll be fine with it. And if we could start teaching them in schools, like in high schools, um, you know, eventually we would have the whole population more or less trained in how they work. And this would not be the barrier that it currently is. People will say it was a miracle that you survived. And and while that's true, what I always tell people, I think we can do better. That was survivor Scott Klein and cardiologist Dr. Christopher Labos. I'm Libby Zimmer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, are you sticking to your exercise resolution for the new year, and are you working out the right way? You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by CARP, fighting against ageism in the workplace and the marketplace. Find out more at carp.ca. Are you still sticking to your New Year's exercise resolution? And are you working out the right way? 
author and personal trainer Igor Klibanov specializes in training people over 50. And as the title of his bestseller says, stop exercising the way you are doing it now. What I see um, as from, from my clients who I largely work with as a personal trainer is that a lot of people over 50 are exercising incorrectly um, for, for their goals. So they'll overemphasize certain things and underemphasize um, other things. Uh, there is too much of a reliance on core strength and not, under, uh, not enough of a reliance on lower body and upper body strength. Um, and there's a lot of common mistakes being made that uh, by simply changing a few things, they could spend the same amount of time exercising, but get better results out of it. What are some of the biggest issues you find with people as they age? Is it balance? Is it strength? Uh, both of the above? The foundational fitness quality for everything is strength, loss of muscle mass, sarcopenia, and that leads to a bunch of other uh, conditions. Sarcopenia can lead to osteopenia and eventually osteoporosis. It can lead to type 2 diabetes because you use your muscle mass to regulate your blood sugar. It can lead to hypertension because of other metabolic conditions. Um, And so a loss of muscle mass will lead to other things like a loss of endurance and a loss of balance. And what can you do to regain muscle mass, for instance, uh, not just for regular aging, but say after an illness? Well, the biggest issue, the biggest way to regain muscle mass is strength training. Um, And that doesn't necessarily mean weight. It could be a lot of other things. It could be a resistance bands. It could be your own body weight, but progressive strength training. And I emphasize progressive because, again, you have to increase either the repetitions or the number of uh, the sets or the amount of weight over time. Now, would you say the is there a big problem with people uh, who uh, are older just getting into exercise or maintaining exercise? Uh, what would you say? No, it's it's never too late. We've had clients in their 90s that never strength trained before, and then they get stronger. Uh, it's never too late. And the real encouraging thing about being a beginner, it doesn't matter what your age is, is that progress comes fast. The more advanced you are, the harder and harder and harder you have to work for less and less and less progress. So again, it's very, very encouraging to be a beginner because progress comes fast. Now, you all also have a fitness prescription for people, women with osteoporosis. That's correct. And so I would say it depends on, A, where is their osteoporosis? Is it in the lumbar spine, the total hip, the femoral neck, or the wrist? And second, how, um, how, what, what is their T-score, which is the severity of their osteoporosis? Uh, and that would determine their starting point. So I can't say that everybody with osteoporosis should be doing this program. I'd say it largely depends on your T-scores. However, as a general rule, What women with osteoporosis should be doing from a strength training perspective, the goal is to be doing between three and five sets of five to eight repetitions. And when it comes to osteoporosis, the tempo of the exercise is very important. The idea is to lift the weight as quickly as possible and lower it under control for maybe three or four seconds. But to do five to eight repetitions of three to five sets. And that should be done between two and three days per week. The weight should be enough that at the end of the set, if they were to ask themselves, how many more could I have done? The answer should be, I probably could have only done one or two more. I can't say it should be X number of pounds or Y number of pounds because it varies person by person and muscle group by muscle group. Now, you also say that calcium calcium for osteoporosis is a myth. Yeah, it's at best unnecessary, at worst harmful. What calcium does, and there is very wide universal agreement on this, at least in the literature, is it gives you the illusion of strong bones without actual strong bones. What it does is that it 
very slightly increases bone density, not to any great extent, but very, very slightly. However, what's the importance of bone density? Bone density tells you about what really matters, which is fracture risk. Bone density is just a test. You're not taking calcium to look good on a test. You're taking calcium to avoid fractures, and that it doesn't it doesn't make a difference whatsoever. Whether somebody is taking calcium as a supplement or not makes no difference. Whether somebody has a high dietary calcium intake or not doesn't make a difference. So it just gives you the illusion of strong bones without actual strong bones. Why do a lot of doctors tell their patients that they should be at least eating a lot of calcium? Great question, because we know that in children, calcium leads to strong bones and teeth, but not in adults. Uh, We also know that calcium is a mineral in bones and teeth. However, it's not the only mineral, and it's not, it doesn't make 100% of bones and teeth. Uh, the test is called bone mineral density. In other words, it only measures the mineral content of bone. But bones are only about 41% minerals. That means there are 59% that's not minerals. Um, and so what about the other 59%? Well, largely, that's collagen. Uh, collagen actually has a relationship to fracture risk. And by the way, that's the most important thing, not bone density. Um, so fracture risk is what really matters, and that's why calcium doesn't make a difference in terms of fracture risk. A lot of doctors will say uh, calcium is unnecessary and potentially harmful, uh, but the, the research is actually quite unanimous on this. I haven't seen a single study or meta-analysis that, that shows a reduction in fracture risk from calcium. Now you say, on the other hand, that eating a lot of protein is helpful. Yes. Why protein? Because, again, bones are 59% collagen. And what is collagen? Collagen is a protein. And so for that reason alone, that's going to help um, uh, fracture us. Again, that's what really matters, not just bone density. Uh, But not just that, protein will also help muscle mass, which will in in turn uh, help bone mass as well. So there's many good reasons to eat protein. Anything else you want to leave us with? In addition to strength training and adequate protein intake, probably one of the greatest impact on your bone strength is actually jump training. Now, jumping is a very beneficial exercise, but it's also a very high-risk exercise. And so how do you get the benefits of jumping without the risks of jumping? By progressively, slowly, and correctly working up using your strength training only for six to nine months before you start introducing jumps into your exercise routine. If a, if a person can combine strength training with jump training, they have the potential to reduce fracture risk by as much as 75%. Igor, thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Libby. That was author and trainer Igor Klibanov. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. With technical production by Ian Robertson. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.